you turn with me to the passage on which today's teaching is based, that's 1 Samuel 16. It's also printed in your bulletins, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons uh, to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, and Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. And this is God's word. You know, last week, uh, we started a very brief set of sermons, if you're new or visiting here uh, at today. And uh, this uh, brief set of sermons is to understand the ethos of Metro. And we've been saying that more than a life focused on morals, more than a life focused on just modifying, remaking, and reinventing ourselves, real character and real change comes through gospel transformation. That's what we, we uh, espouse here at Metro. And that modesty and courage and generosity and friendship, community, these, are all, these all come from a transformed life that's very different from a life that comes from just good morals or behavior modification. Uh, for one thing, a life that's been transformed by the gospel uh, addresses your anxieties. It addresses the nightmares in your life. It addresses your fears, those core desires that we have. And because a moral person is always comparing himself with other people. I mean, there are standards that we should all live by. And that's going to lie at the heart of our anxieties. And that's going to lie at the heart of our, of our anger at times what we deserve, what other people deserve. That's going to lie at the heart of our fear and our depression. And you're never going to experience real joy that way. You're never going to experience real freedom that way. You're going to lack a gracefulness in your stride, a gracefulness in your life. You're going to lack a graciousness towards other people. And that's true kingliness. 
That's what it is. Kingly character. That's the kingly character of God. So in this passage, in 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is supposed to be a king that has the heart of God. But he corrupted himself. And he became a lot like the rest of the kings around him uh, in his day. And so God rejected him as king. We read this last week. And now Samuel, he's grieving. Samuel is grieving. He's saying, there's no one that we can trust. There's no one out there. If If Saul isn't worthy, then who can possibly be worthy? But then God comes to Samuel and he says, actually, there is somebody worthy. There's somebody who's after my own heart, a real king. Who is that king? There are three things we're going to learn today. The necessity of kingly character, the possibility of kingly character, and the practicality of kingly character. The necessity of kingly character, why you need kingly character in your life, the possibility of it, and then the practicality of it. How do you apply that in your life? First, the necessity. In chapter 15, God tells Samuel, you know, you're grieved that Saul is king, and God rejects Saul, and so Samuel's crying. And in chapter 16, verse 1, Samuel's still grieving. And it actually takes God to snap him out of his grieving, out of his mourning. And he says, how long are you going to mourn? How long are you going to keep crying? Because I'm sending you to Bethlehem. I'm going to give you somebody else. And what God says is, I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. And when you get to verses 6 and 7, that's actually the narrative center, uh, the, the center of this passage. Samuel, he looks at Eliab, the eldest son of Jesse, and he says, surely this, surely this one, he is the Lord that's anointed. But then God responds. And essentially what he's saying is, Samuel, your eyes are wrong. They're crooked. They're bad. Your eyes are misdirected. You're distracted. And so you're, you're valuing the wrong things. You're paying attention to something that's actually unimportant, completely unimportant. But it looks important to you, and so you're missing it all. You're not getting it. And so you're blind and you're deceived. You don't see reality as it should be. You don't see truth. You don't really see what's important. And what God's saying to Samuel is, you, Samuel, and us, the entire human race, You're obsessed with things that are not real. You're obsessed with things that are unimportant. Because just because it's apparent to you, just because it's visible to you, just because there's material value to you, it doesn't make it real. And so Eliab comes by, Samuel sees his height, and he says, this is the one, because Eliab is tall. And the reason why the author notes that Eliab is tall, because Saul, King Saul was tall. King Saul was a giant. He was a head taller than everyone else. And when Samuel anointed Saul, you know what he said? He said, the Lord has anointed you. Now he sees alive and he says, this one must be from the Lord. This one must be the one that the Lord has anointed. Almost the same thing. Even though he's grieving because of Saul, even though Saul has brought tremendous disappointment, He's mourning for days because the choice that he had made in Saul and looking at all the wrong things, he immediately forgets. He sees a lie and says, then you must be the one. What does that tell you? We are consistently looking at the wrong things that make up kingliness. We're intoxicated, misdirected 
by appearance. Samuel, he's misdirected by appearance. He's misdirected by uh, Saul, Saul's height. He's misdirected by Eliab's height. To be tall in the ancient times was to be, you know, it, it, you're a specimen. You are attractive. You, are, you draw attention. And, I mean, it's like that now for that matter. And to be tall then is to be kingly. To be tall then is to be impressive. It represented power. It represented strength. It represented capacity. So when Samuel, when he, when he says that he's tall, he's referring to Eliab's potential and his gifts and, and his strength. And his capacities, his skills, his power. God says, Samuel, that's the trap. See, that's the deception. The Lord looks at the heart. One's character is reality. Appearance is just misdirection. Appearance is just the intoxication, the distraction. You know what it means to be intoxicated? When you're intoxicated, your judgment is impaired. You see things differently. Something may be there but the way you see it, it's distorted. And so your view of reality is impaired. How, what you see is impaired. How you feel about something, it's all impaired. And so what God is saying is that physical appearance, a person's smoothness, a person's intelligence, a person's talent or abilities, their success, their wealth, all unimportant. It's not reality. Character will always be greater than the externals. Character will always be greater than the competence of a person. Man looks at the appearance, the externals, but not God. Physical appearance is not who we are. Now, it's difficult because we live in a culture that's bombarded with images and role models that really espouse physical beauty above all things. The intelligence of a person, the capacities of a person to a degree. And we are going to go to great distances and pay a huge price That's where the anxiety is from. That's where the depression often comes from. We go to great distances. We pay a huge price to give off this appearance of greatness, of goodness, of confidence. But no matter who we are, no matter who you are, no matter how successful you are, you can't help comparing yourself with other people. And that is just so corrosive to our souls and our society today. I'm going to give you a couple examples, things I've shared before. One, if you look at uh, the makeup industry, the fashion industry, the pornography industry. Most industries, for that matter, capitalize on what? On the, it's on the fact that our souls are obsessed with a person's shape, the quality of their skin, much more so than the quality of their character. In fact, if you look at even how we choose politicians, a lot of us are uninformed in politics. What are you going to go on? You're going to go on their education. You're going to go on their name. You're going to go on their upbringing, their status. You're going to go on their intelligence, where they studied, what they've accomplished and achieved. After all, what else are we going to base a person's capacities on, their capability to lead? And the thing is, the beauty industry, the makeup industry, the fashion industry, the pornography industry, because they prey on the fact that our souls are obsessed with the quality of our bodies, our figures, the shape of our bodies and our figures, it's killing our women in our societies today. It's destroying their self-image on the inside, and it's destroying lives and relationships on the outside. Now, secondly, if you're honest, practically everybody at some point in their lives does dating exactly the way Jesse is looking for a king. If you're honest with yourself, and if we're honest as a society, 
In our hearts, we do dating exactly the way Jesse does looking for a king. Jesse knew that one of his sons was going to be king. So what does he do? He lines them up, the best ones. He lines them up. He's sizing them up. And what he does is uh, he takes the most physically impressive person first, the most attractive, the gifted son forward first. That's the eldest one. And then he goes with the second one. Then he goes with the, he just goes down the line. And David is completely overlooked, but he's the king, you see? We're obsessed with the lives in our lives. We're obsessed with wanting to become an alive, and we have a certain standard and approach to becoming an alive in our lives. And we're obsessed then with looking for lives in our lives as role models, as spouses, raising them up as our children. And the Bible clearly is saying here that we're all trying to be Saul, we're looking for Saul's, and we're trying to raise Saul's in our lives. And God has rejected Saul. This is a rebuke. This is a rebuke to the whole of society. This is a rebuke to our church. This is a rebuke to you, to me. Do you see that? We're obsessed with the lives. Do you know that if you look at the the way ESPN has slowly transformed the sports, entertainment, and news industry, when ESPN was first uh, introduced, they were strictly focused on reporting the news. Today, they're focused on what? Personalities. Our sports have been more focused, and our reporting on sports has become more focused on individual achievement, stats. And you see that in fantasy football and basketball, baseball, everything, right? We're not, we don't look at the actual person behind. We try to ignore that. And we're so devastated when... You know, we're probably less devastated today than 30 years ago before the the internet, right? When we find out about a sports figure or a celebrity who's fallen from grace. Do you understand that? We're never impressed by character. And so what we do is we eliminate the Davids. That's how we do dating. We line people up and we mow them down one by one. And what we do is all the while we are eliminating the Davids when we should be pursuing the Davids in our lives. We're never impressed by character. You meet a person, you're always impressed first by their intelligence, their wit, their charm, their sense of humor. None of those things make you a good father, by the way. None of those things make you a good mother. We're, we're impressed by their intelligence, their job, their status, their education, how much money they have. And we just are so grateful that they go to church. You understand what we do? We just hope that they have decent character. This passage says that we are looking for a king, and yet the chances are that we've just eliminated the true king because of our intoxication and our misdirection, our distraction. If you look outside and you see the misery of the city around us, that's why Metro exists, the misery of the city. Look at all the broken relationships and the tensions that exist throughout the city. The more plugged into the city you are, you understand that it's very nuanced, right? There isn't a magic bullet that's going to solve the education problem in our city. There isn't a magic uh, bullet that's going to solve the health care problem in our country, right? But look at all the broken relationships and the tensions that exist, especially today in our day-to-day. Look at all the broken relationships, even in the church. What's the source? Is the source of it a lack of talent? Is the source of it a lack of intelligence? Is the source of it a lack of creativity? Is it a lack of beauty? Outer beauty. No. We know that it's a lack of trust 
It's a lack of character. It's a lack of love, genuine love. It's the pride and the anger and the selfishness that's destroying communities. It can destroy any community. It can destroy our community. Let me offer you a challenge. Today, go to somebody that knows you very well, that doesn't, that you know, won't just appease you. Go to someone who actually knows you. There's a difference between somebody who knows you and appeases you and somebody who knows you and will speak into you. Go to somebody who knows you well. Do you have the courage to ask them to audit your character? Say, can you tell me if I'm a person filled with anxiety or a person of peace? Am I an angry person or a content person? Do you find me to be a vain person or a modest person? Do you think I'm a self-absorbed person or a loving person? Am I viewed as a kind person, a charitable person, or a mean person? Do you have the guts to do that? Do you have the guts to do that? Because if you say, uh, you know, I'd rather not do that right now, I'm not ready for that, I'm afraid to do that, or if you're dismissive of all that altogether, you don't see how God sees. Now, when God says, I don't want them, you know, one by one, we had Eli pass by, I don't want him. Abinadab comes by, I don't want him. Shema passes by, I don't want him. I don't want them as king. I look at the heart. It's very possible to misunderstand this passage, to think that David was a good guy, and he had, he had a great heart, and his brothers were just bad people, had a bad heart. If you read the rest of First and Second Samuel, you will see at the end that David's record was actually not much better than Saul's. David does horrible things. David does unspeakable things. If you were here through the Advent series, we learned about Bathsheba. You know David is capable and has committed horrible, unspeakable things, terrible things. So he's not a king because he's a better heart, because he's a better person. Then why was he considered the kingly one? Because in this passage, Samuel, he takes the horn of oil, he anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and from that day on, what happens? The Spirit of God came upon David. Some of your translations, the Spirit of God rushed on David. What does that say? What does it say? That the Spirit of God negotiated with David. The Spirit of God supplemented David's character. David was a great guy, and his Spirit just made him better. The Spirit of God coached David. The Spirit of God partnered with David. The Spirit of God just gave David some good advice, just what he needed to get him over the edge. David just needed a little bit more help because he was almost there on his own. No, we know that's not what this text is saying. The Spirit of God rushed in. When the Spirit of God came upon David, what he's saying is every ounce and crevice of David's life, the Spirit of God had to go in there and pound it. It had to fill every part of David's life for the rest of his life, every second, every moment. And when he abandons that, what happens? David's life comes to ruin. Can you imagine? That's life without God. That's our lives without God, the Father in our lives. You can't become kingly on your own. You need the Lord in every second, every decision, every temptation, every day, because we are bombarded with voices and images that affirm that your core desires, apart from God, are okay, and that you can pursue these things, and we can justify it. We have wonderful unbelievable ways that we can justify being distant from God to pursue the things that we want. 
growing up, the book of Proverbs for me, even now sometimes, is a very confusing book. What's astounding to me is that as confusing as it can be, you know, I read them, I used to read them like a riddle. You know, you have to sit there and like kind of figure it out. If you stare at it enough, it's one of those diagrams where it kind of like reshapes and you kind of see the truth. I used to think that. The book of Proverbs was a book that was actually dedicated to teaching boys, youth in Israel. Right? So here we are trying to figure it out today, and yet it was dedicated to teaching boys in Israel. And the first several chapters of the book of Proverbs is what? Life is measured in leaps and bounds. Take great leaps, my son. That's not what it says. The first several chapters of the book of Proverbs says what? Step by step, walk in my ways. Walk in the ways of God. You need the Lord in every step of life. Life is a walk because the natural way of the heart is not kingly. The natural way of the heart is not kingly character. So you want justice? The Bible says the natural way of the heart wants yourself and your desires above justice, even justice, unless the Holy Spirit comes upon you and rushes in, unless you become a Christian. Why is this important? The necessity of kingly character? Because if you ignore this aspect of the teaching, your heart and your life, your soul and your life is in great danger Because if you believe at the core, at the end, that this stuff, church, God, gospel, Jesus, is just something that I need as an insurance policy or something I need to just supplement my life because I believe that I'm making good choices, you will never change. You will never change. We need kingly character. And that is only possible in the Lord, in our lives, step by step, every decision, every temptation, You have to let the Lord shape you. That's the necessity. Secondly, the possibility. Jesse had eight sons, and he prayed seven of them in front of Samuel. Eight minus seven equals one. There's one left out, right? So seven, Samuel, he doesn't know. He he shows up to Jesse's house. Seven sons are paraded in front of him, and he looks at these seven. He says, seven. You know, the the number seven is very, very important in the Bible. In the Old Testament, number seven means completion. It means perfection. And so Samuel is looking at Jesse's seven sons, and he says, yes, of course. This must be the family, and it must be one of them because the number seven God has planned it out in his divine way to choose one of them to be the perfect son, to be the complete man, surely. And so one by one, they're being paraded, and they all go by. Samuel figures, yes, one of them's bound to be it. But God doesn't choose any of them. And so he turns to Jesse, Samuel, and he says, Jesse, is this it? Is this all you have? And verse 11, Jesse says, well, no, there's the youngest. The Hebrew word there, that phrase, literally takes that idea of youth and combines that idea with youth with insignificance. And so he says, well, when he's saying, oh, well, there's the youngest, really in Hebrew what he's saying is, well, no, there's... there's I mean, I didn't ask him to go. He, he doesn't even name his name. He just says, well, there's him over there. Uh, I didn't even ask him to come because he's not kingly. He's a nobody. You don't want to meet him. I have no idea even what his gifts are. 
He's out there with the sheep, and Samuel says, I need to see him now. There's urgency. We can't even sit down unless David arrives. And so they bring him in, and God says, this is the one. Now, it's very odd. Seven is a number for perfection. David wasn't even counted in that lot. David was the eighth son. He's the overlooked, neglected son that's outside of that realm of what we call perfection. And what made it worse is in the ancient times, they were governed by a law of primogeniture. What that means is that the oldest son in the family received the lion's share of the wealth of the family, the power, the control, the authority of the family. And so he could take the wealth and manage it and distribute it in the way that he saw fit. But every place in the Bible where God works, he works in a way that actually overturns the world's values. So the world says the oldest son is the most important. But the Bible always overturns those values. You see that in Scripture always. The Bible always sees God favoring the younger son. And so Abel is favored, not Cain. Jacob is favored, not Esau. Joseph is favored, not Reuben. Moses is favored, not Aaron. God is always working through the forgotten son, the overlooked son. David was a descendant of Leah. Leah was overlooked. She's the unattractive daughter. And Leah was married to Jacob, who was the overlooked and unfavored son. And Jacob's father, Isaac, he was born through a barren woman, left aside, cast out, named Sarah. You get what's going on here? In a culture where rep- your reputation and your status and your beauty and your position in the family meant everything, God always worked through the weakest and the less, the least, the youngest the overlooked. You understand what I'm saying? If you are the lesser, if you are the overlooked one, if you are the weaker one, if you're the one that says, I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody, I'm insignificant, that means that you're the one that God can work through. That's what that means. And he doesn't work through these people in spite of their weakness. He works in them because of their weakness. He works in them through their weakness. Robert Alter, he's a famous uh, Hebrew scholar. Um, he taught at my alma mater at Brandeis University for years. He's now a, a scholar at Berkeley, and, and he's a liberal scholar, but he's one of the foremost Hebrew scholars in the world today. And one of the things he says is that if David was never forgotten, if David was never out there looking after the sheep, He would never learn what it meant to kill a bear or a lion, something larger than him, larger than a man. He never would have learned the skills that he needed to defeat Goliath. You understand what I'm saying here? Being overlooked provided this incubation period where David was instinctively trained by God to lead and to protect and to have courage and to be meek. It's powerful, isn't it? Nothing you do is insignificant. Nothing you're learning right now is insignificant. Right now, in the hardest moments of your life, God is using that as a pressure cooker to train you and to shape you in a way that can make you kingly. You've been through some tough times, friends. I've been through some tough times in my life. God will use that, your hardest moments, to shape you and train you like an incubation period. Instinctively, you will grow. There's nothing, there's no greater lesson than to learn something instinctively right? Instinctively trained to become a kingly person. When Samuel looks at Eliab the first time, he says, surely this is him. You know what he's saying? In the Hebrew, 
I mean, in our translation, it says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. The Hebrew word for that anointed is messiach. It's where we get the word messiah. And so you have this Greek translation of the Old Testament. The actual word is Christos. Christos. Surely this is Christ. That's what Samuel's saying. But the thing is, it wasn't even Eliab. In fact, it wasn't even David. Because David was a precursor. David was a signpost, a pointer to the real king. Isaiah chapter 9 says what? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. He will reign. He will sit and reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom forever. David was born in Bethlehem. And as everybody's looking for a king, David was excluded. He was not allowed in. So he was left out there with the sheep and the animals. And he became a shepherd. But there was another child born in Bethlehem. And everybody's looking for a king. He wasn't allowed in either. There was no room in the inn. And so he was left with the sheep and the animals in a manger. And he became the good shepherd. And when Jesus Christ was anointed by the Spirit, soon after he was immediately sent into the wilderness. And there he was alone. And whereas David learned in that incubation period to slay the giant, Jesus Christ, in his training and in his time in the wilderness, learned about the true mission that God had sent him on to be faithful to his mission. And there he was alone, always overlooked, all the way up to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was not just forgotten, David was forgotten. David was left out by his father. But David, he's still king. Jesus Christ, not just forgotten by the father, he was forsaken by the father. He was rejected by the father. He was brought down. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying there is now on the cross, I am truly, cosmically, spiritually overlooked by God. By God! David was seen by God. Jesus Christ says on the cross, I'm being overlooked by God, rejected by God, the most beautiful king in the world, the most worthy king in the world, the most beautiful person that ever existed. Jesus Christ, he came to the earth unrecognized, lost all attractiveness, gave it up. Isaiah 53, he had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. That means everybody overlooked him. Why? Why? Even on the cross, he was rejected and overlooked. Why? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus Christ became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ became ugly on the cross, marred, just beaten up, shredded and torn apart on the cross. Why? So that we would be restored and healed, made beautiful on the cross. Jesus Christ was disowned as God's son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So we would be owned, that we would be a people belonging to God, 1 Peter 2. We would be sons of God, Galatians 4. You would have the full rights of sons. Jesus Christ became a slave to death so we could become kings. 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a royal priesthood. You know what that means? In heaven, we're all kings. You, that's plural, the church, are a royal priesthood. We're all kings. So do you feel ugly at times? Does the world beat you up at times? 
you feel weak at times, look to the ultimate narrative of rejection, perfected by Jesus Christ, the high king, who paid the eternal debt of justice and was rejected by his own father, rejected by God. The gospel teaches that God works through the forgotten. He works through the rejected. He works through the overlooked to bring about an ultimate salvation. That means that he can work through you and your insignificance, you feeling overlooked sometimes. Don't focus on being overlooked. God is doing something very, very special. He could be doing something very incredible in your life. You don't have to be afraid of the real you. A lot of us don't want to face the real us, which is why there's pride and covering up and justification. You don't have to be afraid of the real you. You know why? Because Jesus took on the real you, and he's given you real kingliness, the real him. That's union. That's what happens when the Spirit of God rushes on you. That's what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon you. And so when you say that I'm going to base my life not on my merit, not on the things I've accomplished, but what, on Jesus' merit and what he's accomplished, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And there is the beauty, and there is the power, and there is the kingliness that you need. You focus on externals. External beauty says you have to work to be approved. You have to look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way to, be, to become acceptable. The gospel says Jesus Christ was the most acceptable person on earth. And he already accomplished that for you. He died for you. There is the validation. There is the approval. There is the honor that you need. Pursue Jesus. You want beauty? Pursue the beauty of Christ. You want inclusion? Pursue the fact that you are accepted in Christ. You want honor? Pursue the fact that you are honored in Christ. Delighted by God. God is doting on you. And that's when you're at your worst. Because when you are at your worst and your weakest and your most insignificant place in your life, God is working in there. That's the incubation period. Don't let those periods go by. Don't, let those pe- don't overlook those periods. Don't neglect those periods in your life. Pursue Christ. Pursue his love as you've been pursued by him. Because he is the true king who suffered the wrath of God because he wanted you so bad. That's the only truth. Knowing that and trusting that, that's the only truth that's going to change you. That's the only thing that's going to help to clear away anxiety because you know you are taken care of. You're angry, you want justice. Jesus Christ suffered the injustice of God. And us receiving his kingliness is an injustice in itself because we know that God will ultimately bring his justice. Trust in that. Don't work to become accepted because you are accepted. That's going to end your anxieties. It's going to end your depression. It's going to end the constant fighting that we do with other people. The comparisons. That's the only thing that's going to end the comparison. Comparisons. It's the only thing that's going to end the jealousy, the, the infighting, the power to melt away the obsession, our obsession with appearance. It's going to change your eyes. It's going to shape your eyes. Last point, very quickly is the practicality. How do you apply that? Because you can't be obsessed with externals because the people who are obsessed with externals overlook David, right? They overlook Jesus. So rather than working so hard to develop the externals, desire to be a person of character. Think about this. If you spend as much time in your character 
as you do your outer qualities. If you invest as much in your integrity and your purity as you do on your education, if you valued or treasured or delighted in your relationship with the Father as you do your relationships at home or your portfolio, your financial portfolio, you would reach a greater potential. You would have greater options. You would have to experience a greater freedom and joy than you could ever imagine. But you know why we don't do that? It's because of our sin. It's because of our fear. We fear disapproval. We, and that's, it's very nuanced. I don't want to be light about that. It's very nuanced. We fear uh, disapproval. We fear loss, loss of security. We fear failure. These are the core motivations of our heart, our idols. And these are the things that drive us. Well, the gospel shows us that we are free. Those are the things that choked Jesus on the cross. And he died for us so that we could be free. God doesn't just come and now say to you, well, you better shape up because I'm going to give you a second chance. That's not what he did. He doesn't say, look at what I did for you, so you better start doing this for me. I'm going to give you one more chance. That's not a loving king. It's not a gracious king. You know what Augustine prayed, St. Augustine? He prayed, grant me the strength. He recognized that God commands and demands and uh, calls us to live out things that he can't accomplish on his own. So you know what his prayer was? Grant me then the strength. If you could call me to it, you can give me the strength to do it. Grant me the strength to do what you will. Take in the gospel. Let the Holy Spirit shape you. Union. Practical things. One, stop pursuing lives in your life. Stop pursuing lives. And stop trying to present yourself as an Eliab. Here's a hint. They know you're arrogant. They do. Samuel looks at Eliab and he's focused, so focused on the externals. What are you attracting people to in your life? What are you attracted to in your life? Will you look for character? real character? Will you work and be obsessed with the development of the character of the people you love? Will you be obsessed? They used to say, I'm a, you know, Michael Jordan is, uh, people think he's my favorite basketball player. He's not. You know, I'm a Philly guy. I mean, you got to love Barkley. I mean, I love Magic Johnson Barkley. I don't even know why I'm telling you this. Anyways, Michael Jordan, one thing I admire about Michael Jordan, I mean, he used to beat us in the playoffs every year. You get to the playoffs, you get, you pass the first round, then you turn off the TV because we're not going to beat the Bulls, right? Michael Jordan, up until he was 50, and I, he may still be doing this, would meet with his trainer every year and say, if I were to come back to the NBA today, you know, they say he was still the best scorer on the team that he owns because he's still so good. He has the capacity to outscore any of his players up until at least he was 50, I know that. He used to meet with his trainer once a year and ask, what do I need to do to make it into the NBA now, to play at the highest level? And his trainer would give him, well, I mean, we have to exploit different qualities because you've aged, so you can't dunk anymore, you can't do certain things, so now we're going to have to develop this. And to this day, they say he practices as if he's going to go to the NBA. You know? He's that obsessed with developing the things that are most important in his life. What are you obsessed by? If you were to just take the moment and the time to be obsessed with what God is doing in your life, and to shape and develop that, and to see that being shaped and developed in other people, would that not make you more winsome than your status depicts you to be? Would that not make you more winsome than your externals? Would that make you more winsome than your status and your salary? 
How much can your salary remake you? But the Holy Spirit and what God is doing in your life will shape you in a way to make you more like Christ. And he is beautiful, is he not? The other thing is when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, from that point on, David suffered. So in chapter 17, he fights Goliath. In chapter 18, the king wants him dead. Chapters 18 through 20, he's, he realizes he's going to lose his best friend. And from that point on, he's engaged in a civil war. He's hiding in caves. He's oftentimes in despair, in the wilderness. This is the king, the God's anointed king, and yet most of the time he's groveling on the floor in caves. Civil war has broken out because of him. People are dying all around him. The sadness, the homesickness, the longings. You're going to suffer. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, when, when you become a Christian, you're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer in ways that your talent can't overcome it. That's what suffering is. When you realize that your talent can't overcome the thing that you're encountering or experiencing. So when you're sick, you're like lying in bed. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Right? You guys watch No Country for Old Men? Man dressed in black, relentless. What's he out to do? He's going to kill you. Terminator, right? They, 20 years ago, that was called the Terminator, right? All it is, that movie, that book, tells you death wins. He's going to get what he wants. Your intelligence will not help you. No amount of intelligence will stop that. So it's a question of then, the only way to then live, Nicodemus says, well, how can I live forever? How can I have eternal life? Nicodemus, you need to be I know you're a good man. You need to be reborn. That's what you need. We are matured then through our suffering. We are made perfect through our obedience in the cave. That's what it needs to be broken. And if God saved the world through Jesus' brokenness, and Jesus calls us to be broken, take up the cross, follow me, right? then brokenness is the prerequisite for seeing God, knowing God, salvation in Christ, redemption, healing, freedom, joy. Don't overlook your suffering. Don't just do whatever you can to avoid it or avert it. You understand? When you're in it, focus. Stop looking at the externals. Look at real reality in Christ. You're going to mature. You're going to grow. You're going to grow in compassion in ways that you never would have before. You're going to grow in character in ways you never would have before, in joy. And now you're going to develop kingly character. And you're going to be incredibly winsome. And that's at the ethos and the heart of Metro, the heart of God. Let's pray together.